From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. And if I look back at all of my research, I think that I find myself really drawn to paradoxes and contradictions and impossibilities. This week on our show, we speak with Julie Guthman, a food scholar who has never been afraid to challenge the conventional thinking on any topic she's tackled. We'll talk with her today about her research on the strawberry industry. And it's pesto time. If you're growing basil or purchasing it from local growers, now is the time to get to the kitchen and make some pesto. It freezes really well, so you can make extra to enjoy in the colder months ahead. We've got a recipe coming up later in the show, so stay with us. Here's Renee Reed with the news. Hi, Renee. Hello, Kate. Birds are losing weight and time during migration thanks to the world's most widely used pesticide. A study published this week in the journal Science found songbirds that ate the equivalent of one or two seeds treated with neonicotinoids, a class of pesticides also known as neonics, exhibited decreased appetite and lost weight within hours, forcing the birds to delay their migratory journey. Pesticides are introduced to plants at the seed stage, and spring bird migration occurs when farmers in the U.S. and Canada are planting. Migrating birds may be exposed to neonicotinoids at multiple sites where they rest and feed, extending migration delays that could ultimately lead to reduced migration survival and decreased reproductive success, according to the study. Neonicotinoids are also found to have adverse effects on bees in some places, and a 2014 study in the journal Nature indicates a decline in birds that eat insects affected by neonicotinoids. The European Union banned the use of neonicotinoids in 2018 because they were killing pollinators. Protesters have descended on Minneapolis in recent weeks to demonstrate against agribusiness juggernaut Cargill, which is based near the city. They are drawing attention to the company's use of soybeans from Brazil and other countries clearing rainforests and savanna for the grain trade. Fires in the Amazon during one week this summer increased 84% compared to the last dry season as farmers set fires to clear land for crops and cattle pastures. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has pushed for more private and commercial use of rainforest and other land that had previously been protected. At the vanguard of protest against Cargill is Mighty Earth, a group founded by former California Representative Henry Waxman. Earlier this month, the presidents of Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Guyana, and Suriname signed an Amazon pact to increase cooperation in the Amazon. Bolsonaro did not attend. Watchdogs are connecting the dots between President Trump's trade war with China, the world's biggest soybean buyer, and increased land clearing in the Amazon as a way to meet soybean demand the U.S. no longer provides. A Chinese state-owned oilseed and food company, Kofco, announced last month that it would buy 25% more soybeans from Brazil over the next five years and spend $60 million to help Brazilian farmers expand. That's our food news for this week. Thanks to Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard for those stories. And thanks to you, Renee Reed. No problem, Kate. So my name is Julie Guthman. I'm a professor of social sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz. 
Julie Guthman is a food scholar whose work has had a profound effect on much of my thinking about alternative food movements. Her 2011 book, Weighing In, challenges common approaches to the so-called obesity epidemic and has pushed me to examine the limits of interventions such as school gardens and farmers markets in transforming our food system. Julie Guthman visited the IU campus in the spring and gave a keynote address at a conference called Critical Approaches to Superfoods. I invited her to the studio to talk about her recent work. The talk I'm giving is called The Problem with Solutions, and it's really motivated by this tendency I've seen, um, certainly in the tech industry, um, but also in kind of low-tech versions of efforts to transform food. It, so it it's reflects on this tendency to um, have solutions guide the problem. So we're seeing um, so many people come up with solutions that are politically palatable or um, excite them from farmers markets to drones to monitor fields and and go looking for kind of problems to be solved. So I have a, a new research project on agriculture and food technology. And I've been going to all sorts of events where entrepreneurs are looking for venture capital to fund their inventions that, that are about new food products, new new products to help farmers farm. And I'm c constantly struck about how little some of these entrepreneurs seem to understand about the nature of food and agriculture. Her latest book released this summer is on the strawberry industry in California. The the strawberry work, um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. I just completed a book. It's called Wilted, Pathogens, Chemicals, and the Fragile Future of the Strawberry Industry. And it's, um, it's a culmination of maybe five years of research on the California strawberry industry. And what this book does is address how it is that the strawberry industry became so wedded to the use of highly toxic soil fumigants and how that use of fumigants ramified throughout the rest of the industry, making it really, really difficult to change. And, and it's animated by the problem that the, one of the many problems that the strawberry industry is facing, that the chemicals they've long been using are now facing tighter regulation. The issue with these chemicals is they were first introduced to address a suite of soil-based problems nematodes, weeds, but mainly soil-borne pathogens. And these pathogens early on in California's strawberry industry were hurting growers. They were seeing huge um, waves of blight where they were losing lots of crops. And the University of California got involved in trying to support farmers to address these pathogens. And they first developed a breeding program. But sometime in the late 50s, they started experimenting with various fumigants, and they use a combination of methyl bromide, which used to be a fire retardant, and chloropicrin, which is tear gas. And they, they found that a combination of that addressed the pathogen problem. And those two chemicals in combination became the uh, treatment of choice to address soil pathogens and weeds and much more. But methyl bromide is an ozone depleter and has been taken off the market because of the Montreal Protocol on ozone-depleting substances. And chloropicrin, um, they're still allowed to use, but with much tighter restrictions. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that so much of the way strawberries are produced has been developed with the assumption of the availability of those two chemicals to be available. So for instance, strawberries, we often think of it as a seasonal crop, like in most parts of the country where they grow strawberries, to the extent they still grow them, they may be available in the market for three weeks. Mm -hmm. But California strawberries are in the market for 
nine to 10 months of the year. You know, there's certain regions in California where you can grow strawberries or you can be harvesting strawberries for at least six, if not eight months. And you can do it year after year. And those fumigants allowed growers to grow them year after year on the same block. So one of the things that happens is land values become calibrated on the assumption that you're going to be able to fumigate and, and harvest those strawberry plants year after year after year. So strawberry value, land values are very high, making it very difficult to pay rent unless you're getting that kind of yield. Right. In addition, there's a, the qualities of land that are really good for strawberries include um, sandy soils and the highly temperate weather of the coast of California. So most of the strawberries are grown within about three miles of the coast. It's cool in the summer because the breezes come off the, the Pacific Ocean. We call it the natural air conditioning of the Pacific Ocean. So summers are actually cool and foggy right by the coast. And so for the strawberries, it's eternal spring. And so they, because they don't do well in super hot weather. Right. So you have the advantages of that particular climate are great for the strawberries, but it's also where people want to live. And so yeah. there's a lot of suburban development in these same areas. And so that's also putting pressure on land values. Then another issue you have is that plant breeding has been done with the presumption of fumigation. Mm -hmm. So even though the first plant breeding activities were to try to develop pathogen-resistant varieties, once there was fumigation, they no mm -hmm. longer had to do that. So they started breeding for size, for color, for shipability, mm -hmm. um, so they wouldn't perish. Um, for, uh, I mean, size and color, presumably, that's what consumers want. They didn't breed much for taste, except for <laughs> certain varietals. But now you have this problem where w there's these regulations and you can't fumigate with the same, the chemicals that have the same efficacy. In addition, there's been new pathogens appearing that hadn't been there before. So they're, they really need to find some pathogen-resistant varietals. But they've lost some of the original germplasm, like the ancient germplasm that might have been more beneficial. So the strawberry genome itself has changed in, in relationship to the presumption of chemical fumigation. The strawberry genome itself has changed in response to the prevalent use of chemical fumigants. Before you go racing to the grocery store to stock your freezer with those giant, red, nearly flavorless strawberries, stay tuned. After a short break, we'll be back with Julie Guthman to get her sense of how urgent the strawberry problem really is. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. We are back with Julie Guthman of UC Santa Cruz, talking about her research on strawberry growers in California. How immediate is this problem or crisis or whatever you want to call it for the 
strawberry industry? Are they having to make these changes right now? Or are we not going to see as many strawberries on the shelves? Like, what's happening now? And how quickly do they need to move? And what kind of solutions are coming up? Well, that's a great question. The strawberry industry is facing a number of crises. It includes tighter regulation. It includes these new pathogens appearing that they don't really understand. It includes labor shortages. And strawberry Mm -hmm. growers complain about labor shortages more than they even complain about fumigant regulation. It includes high land prices and land scarcity. And it includes low prices for strawberries. So there's a lot of things bearing down on the strawberry industry. And the strawberry growers like to complain, and they do, about all of those things. Already, this set of circumstances, strawberry growers are leaving. I mean, there's in the past few, few years, there's been reductions in acreage. So people are like, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. So that's already happening. Um, now, the kind of s- solutions, so here we go to back to the <laughs> solutionisms. So the kind of, but there, this isn't solutionism, because there it actually is a problem, and they are looking for solutions. Yeah. So the solutions at hand really vary in terms of what, who will benefit or be hurt by them. And they range from finding and, and getting approved through regulatory bodies less toxic replacements for these chemicals. Mm. That's what the strawberry industry most wants because it wouldn't really change up what they do. But so far, none have been developed that California's Department of Pesticide Regulation is willing to accept. So much of the research is in non-chemical alternatives, or, or so, I mean, some biological pesticides too. They've been looking at, but again, none are really ready to go. So they're one thing they're looking at are non-chemical forms of fumigation. So like steam, steam can kind of work, but it's expensive. You have to have steam machines going through, and it's very slow. They've also looked at solarization, where they just put on plastic, mm-hmm. but the, it, it's not hot enough. Oh. So it work, I think it works in Israel in really, really hot climates, but it's just not hot enough there because you need to have a lot of heat to kill the pathogens. So the main thing they're looking at has been um, in the non-chemical treatments has been this thing called anaerobic soil disinvestation, where they flood the fields with water and also add a, um, a carbon source like rice bran or molasses and cover it in plastic, and apparently that creates so much activity that it drowns out the pathogens. Wow. But it's, it's interesting. Yeah, it's, but it's had mixed results. I mean, so far, no one's really brought it up to scale of, like, several hundred acres. They've done it on a couple acres. And it's also, like, it's not chemical, which is good. It's not toxic, but it uses a tremendous amount of plastic and water in a drought-scourged state. We just had a rainy year, thankfully, but... You know, lots of water is not good for California. And it's not even clear, like, the rice bran and molasses, where that would come from. And that could be grown under very toxic conditions. So there's that one. (laughs) And they're also looking at soilless substrate. This is a really interesting one. This is, like, not taking strawberries quite into greenhouses. But as of right now, they're putting soilless substrate as a medium for growing strawberries. So it could be coconut coir or peat moss, but Mm -hmm. it's not fertile soil. And they put it in waist-high trays. Which is good for the harvesters. They don't have to bend over because strawberries are picking. It's really arduous. Crummy so work. it's it's creating a another soil environment that's not that's a, not soil, but it's still outside. It's, it's not, not so right because that's it, the, the thi- climate is great. Because <laughs> the climate's great, so that's exactly the thing. Is like there are people now growing strawberries in greenhouses. Like New Jersey has a, a huge greenhouse operations for all sorts of fruits and vegetables, but the California growers are not 
so excited about greenhouse operations because their biggest competitive advantages are the soil, even though it's now diseased, and, and the weather. Climate. So right yeah. now, they're, they're experimenting in the substrate, but these this expensive infrastructure. Yeah. And so there, so there's that. And then the third the third um, obvious possibility is agroecological techniques, like using rotating strawberries with broccoli. Broccoli has mild fumigation qualities, and cover crops and compost. And, and many there are organic growers that successfully raise strawberries in these integrated systems, but they're not growing strawberries on the same block year after year. Right. And their strawberries are minor crop. And so right. and so you can't they have to find cheaper land or they have to find consumers that are willing to pay a lot more for these strawberries grown in those conditions. Now some in the industry are like, you know, aren't so concerned about these things. They're like, yeah, it's gonna cost more and it's fine, but it's gonna shake out all these people who really don't know what they're doing and those of us who really know what are doing that are the most technologically sophisticated will rise to the top and that'll be fine and we'll just get higher prices, which we want anyway. I think one of the social justice stories here besides the work, which is significant, is that some of the newer growers are Latinx growers who were, were former farm workers or former field managers who've gotten into deep debt to grow strawberries and those are the ones that are turning over year after year, ending up with lots and lots of debt. So a shakeout may be good in terms of for some growers, but it, there will be consequences for people who have tried to get into the strawberry business with a lot less capital. Where has this work taken you in terms of your own critical thinking about food systems and where this all fits into some of the other work that you've done? I mean, if I look back at all of my research, I think that I find myself really drawn to paradoxes and contradictions and impossibilities. Um, And maybe that's the outcome of having an actively critical mind. But I also think it really reflects what I see on the ground. And I think that there's so much in food. I mean, I mean, food has gotten is galvanized so much public attention, and you know, there's food studies and food, food shows and food popular books. We know food is pervasive as like a, a, an object of interest, and I think that there's, I think there's, just, I don't know if it's an expectation, but certainly a hope that there's like easy solutions to everything, and and there's really just not. And I think that a lot of my work has been empathetically critical of alternatives as a way of addressing food systems. By that, I mean I've been, I want to emphasize, empathetically critical of, you know, the farmers markets and the alternative food institutions and the community gardens and the farm to school programs as not doing enough to address the problems in the food system. They show us other ways of producing food and other, possibly other ways of consuming food, but they don't fundamentally undermine the worst sorts of industrial food. And so my project on strawberries has really hit that home for me because I think the agroecological techniques of growing strawberries are important to know about, and it's important to have techniques that will work. But we can't get there unless we fundamentally undermine what is causing growers to continue to fumigate, et cetera. And it includes land values. And it includes um, research and extension systems that aren't really developing integrative sci- science. It's, it's It includes so many different things. It includes huge wealth disparities. Mm-hmm. 
So I keep on coming back to the same problem in almost all my work in that we cannot really change the food system until we change, until we fundamentally address the the pervasive problems of inequality and insufficient regulation and much more in, in the world writ large. Well, and this is also an interesting project because it's come about because of regulation. Like there was some successful regulation right. that right. happened right. in exactly. this industry that right. is what you want. And then here's here's but, what it looks like on yeah. the ground. But the good news is it's it's forcing growers to have to rethink what they do. And so that's how powerful regulation can be. So it's important, but then you have to you have to develop the tools too to farm in other ways. But even though even if these tools are coming available, like we have the problem of land values. We have the problem of, of consumers' expectations of cheap food, and not because they're dumb, but because that's the economic realities in which they live, and that they can't, with low wages, they need, you know, cheap food is one of the ways that they have more wages. So it's, so you can't, you can't escape those realities. And so while we, those of us who work in food and agriculture need to be certainly thinking about how to address the specific problems, we can't kind of move away from really thinking and acting on the bigger social structures. We can't move away from thinking about the bigger social structures. Julie Guthman never fails to look at the bigger social structures. It's what's so powerful about her work. We'll share the second part of our conversation in another episode, where I ask her about her groundbreaking work in challenging the ways in which the good food movement jumped on the obesity bandwagon, and how misguided some of the approaches have been. In the meantime, we have more information on Julie Guthman and her work at eartheats.org. Next, I have a recipe for early fall, when the basil is plentiful, but it won't be for long. Pesto traditionally is made using a mortar and pestle. And I suppose everyone should try making it that way once, just so you know what it's like. But this time of year, I'm struggling to keep up with everything in the garden. Making hot sauce, canning salsa, making pickles. So I'll take all the time-saving techniques I can find. We'll be making pesto in the food processor, but we start off in the garden. It's late summer. The basil is flowering. So I'm just pinching back the center flowering part of each basil plant. And honestly, you're doing the basil a service by cutting all this back because if you leave it to flower, that's pretty much going to be the end of your basil for the season. So you want to be always pinching back those centers to keep the basil going. It's a good time to cut your basil back, harvest a bunch of it, and bring it inside. Make some pesto. So then when we get it inside, we're going to want to put the basil in one of our solid spinners, if you got one. If not, you can just rinse it off in a colander. I'm going to be making pesto today to go on a pizza. Later tonight, I'm going to go to a friend's house who has just finished building an outdoor brick oven. And he's going to be making pizza tonight, and I'm going to make some pesto that we can put on some of those pizzas. Alright, and now it's all nice and clean and fairly dry. So now we just need to gather up all the rest of the ingredients and put them all into the bowl of a food processor. So I need to take all of the 
basil leaves off of the stems. You don't want those really woody stems inside your pesto. We want a total of three cups of basil, kind of loosely packed. Everything doesn't have to be exactly measured out, but you do want to have a general idea of the proportions. And so that's where recipe comes in handy for something like this. About three cups loosely packed basil leaves. You're just gonna wanna set that aside. And then in the bowl of your food processor, you're going to put the garlic, the salt, and the pine nuts. So I've got my two cloves of garlic in the food processor. And now I'm gonna add the pine nuts, three tablespoons of pine nuts. Next, we wanna add the salt. And I would start with a teaspoon of salt and then you can adjust later for taste. And then we're gonna pulse that until it's finely chopped. So we've got the garlic, pine nuts, and salt in the food processor. Next, we'll add the three cups of loosely packed basil leaves and the olive oil. And the olive oil I'm just going to pour into the top of the food processor while it's processing. And that was one half cup of olive oil. And now we're gonna add a half cup of Parmesan cheese. And this is just kind of roughly grated. And then we're gonna blend that up. You'll wanna scrape down the sides of your food processor. And then as far as texture goes, it's really up to you. A lot of people like to have that leafy feeling in their pesto. A lot of people want it just like velvety smooth, almost like a paste. So that is up to you. I'm feeling like there's a tiny bit more olive oil in this one than I would like. So I would start with a quarter cup and then maybe just add tablespoon at a time until it's the consistency that you want. Now it is time to taste. See if we need to adjust for salt. Mm. No, I think it's pretty good on salt with the cheese in there. It really helps. I also like to add a little bit of lemon juice to mine. I like the acidity and I also feel like it helps keep the brightness of the green basil leaves. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. I like the acidity of that lemon juice. And I just added half teaspoon, teaspoon, not much. So that is our basic basil pesto. This is great to put on pasta, of course. Any shape will do. You can spread it on toasts. You can put it on a pizza. This recipe, along with so many others, can be found by visiting eartheats.org. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Aobon Binder, Chad Bouchard, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, 
Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Julie Guthman. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. And Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio.com.